Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Welcome. I'm Paulina here with The Last Word and JD's here with me today. And last night at Crosstalk, JD, you talked about uh, Jesus's crucifixion. And really today's Good Friday. And so I've been thinking about how we're in the just these couple days of what feels like a pause and an in-between of Good Friday and Jesus being crucified and then him being resurrected that we celebrate Sunday. So um, thinking about that, I know that we don't have much solid information on what that actually looked like, but what do you think characterized that kind of pause as we are in that right now? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think that, um, and it's really interesting because we don't have the sources, Mm -hmm. right? We don't know what the disciples were doing. We don't know what the women were doing during this time who had been following Jesus for, for this amount of time. And so we can turn to the sort of the resurrection accounts and we can see the first reactions basically of, of the people who mm-hmm. encounter Jesus. And I mean, we see Ta- Thomas who, who doubts, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that would be um, what I look at it, an, an attitude that would be characteristic of people. You've just dedicated three years of your life, mm-hmm. called out of your profession to, to follow this man for three years. You believe in his identity as the son of God. And then suddenly he is dead and gone. And you're asking yourself like, what do I do? Mm. Everything that I have given my life to for the last three years is gone. And there has to be this level of disbelief, this level of doubt, this level of what is next. You even see that some of the disciples, they go home, they go back to their professions. It's almost like the closing of a chapter in their life. And so, yeah, that's that's an interesting thing to speculate about. Um, and we we have the back end of the story, so it's easy mm-hmm. for us to say like, oh, like this is how they should have reacted. But I think, man, what if my whole life was turned upside down? What if I had mm-hmm. given my life to this one very specific thing and then that fell apart? Mm-hmm. And what did I just build my life around? Mm-hmm. And so I would, I would think doubt, self-doubt, a lot of questions about their identity, what they're doing, where, they, where to go would would center around that time. Yeah, I agree. I think what a time, what a couple days. I feel like they would seem long and just like you said, life flipped upside down. Um, and yeah, I think that thinking about your message, you really emphasize stories and kind of relating on a personal level. What is your favorite part or what sticks with you on this story, whether that be Jesus's journey to the cross, his crucifixion, and then what we'll celebrate on Sunday, which will be the resurrection. What kind of always hits home with you? I think we talk, we hit on it at the end of last night. And for me, I look at the story of the criminal on the cross with mm-hmm. Jesus. I look at Jesus's ministry to the poor, the blind, the outsider, the sick, the broken. And I look and, and then in the resurrection and the way that he reacts to Thomas, who who doubts. And I look into the stories and I see myself and I see the loving kindness that Jesus shows to those people, the people who don't deserve it, the people who doubt, the people who don't believe, the people who are sick, the people who are outsiders. 
And his loving kindness and grace towards them is really what rings true with me because I look at my own life and I look at this story of a perfect Jesus who died as an innocent man for my own sin and I see my un my own unworthiness mm. for that really come through. And those those stories then about those people mean all the more because I place myself, I can see myself as those characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I love that. I think I'm encouraged this Easter week, this Holy Week leading up to Easter that um, God really does the unexpected. And I never have a full, even while God shows us things and reveals things to us, I don't have, he still does the unexpected. I don't always know what he's doing. And that reminds me of that with what you talked about with the criminal reminds me of the people, all of us that have been brought in as outsiders in one way or the other. And it just encourages me that in these couple days while we wait for Sunday to come around and to celebrate, to dedicate that to celebrating Jesus's resurrection, um, it reminds me that when we are going through things that are on pause or that didn't go the way that we thought they would would or should go, um, that we just have to wait and see what God does. He always does than expected. So that encourages me today. And really, that's all we have for the short last word this week. Yeah, I've got one quick thing before we get out of here. Um, I was encouraged by this, just this past week and I started looking at stuff uh, this morning is there are a ton of resources out there to do some thoughtful reflection for Good Friday and the time between Good Friday and Resurrection Easter Sunday. And so I would encourage you guys to, to seek out those. As we talked about last night, the key to understanding the resurrection is dwelling in it, reflecting on it, and really delving into what that means for us personally. And there are some awesome resources out there. Um, and so I would encourage you guys to, to look up those resources and to do a do some internal introspective reflection today in terms of what the, the crucifixion means for you. So we will see you guys here next week. Have a great Easter Sunday. Good to be with you guys tonight. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. If you guys are new tonight, maybe this is your first time ever to Crosstalk or here while we're meeting over here at Cypress Creek Church. My name is JD. I'm the Crosstalk pastor here with Cypress Creek Church. We are so glad that you guys are here. Um, and, I, and I know that I'm going to forget this during announcements, so I'm going to say this now. If you guys don't have a church home, maybe you guys are not traveling home for Easter, we have two services here on Sunday morning. We would love for you guys to come and to celebrate Easter Sunday with us. They're at 9 o'clock and 10.30. Please come and be a part of celebrating Easter with us. Um, as, as I was thinking about this week, um, I've, I've really been struck by the idea of story um, and what makes good stories, what creates compelling stories that people remember, that people want to talk about, that people want to tell again or to be heard told again. I I don't know if how many of you guys know Austin Turnipseed. I just, I was thinking about this and I had a moment last week where I literally had asked him like twice in a day to tell the same story that I had heard several times. I had, I like invited him over and said, hey, will you tell that story that you told me earlier? Will you tell it again to this person? Because it was such a compelling story to me. And, and I, I love TV. I love movies. I love 
really compelling stories. I love to hear good stories. I want to tell good stories. But I especially love to read. Uh, And I I truly have my parents to thank for that. When I was a kid growing up, they really encouraged us to read. We spent a whole bunch of time when I was like during the summer, my mom would take me and my brother, we would go over to the library and we would check out the maximum number of books that they would allow us to check out at a given time. And part of this was a barter system and we were not allowed to watch TV. Like basically we accrued time where we could watch TV proportionate to the amount of pages we read in our book. And it's a beautiful parent trap in that sense because I fell in love with reading. I would cruise through books. And I, I, like growing up, I never knew how to get anywhere in my hometown because my head was always buried in a book when we drove. And so when I turned like 14 or 15 and got uh, my permit, I had no idea how to get anywhere because my head had always been down. She's like, how? my mom was like, how do you mean you don't know how to get to school? Like, I have no idea how to get to school. I pay no attention because my head was always buried in a book. And I don't know if it's just me, because, but I become deeply invested in the things that I watch, in the things that I listen to, and into the things that I read. If I pick up a good book and I'm into it, there's like not breaking concentration, right? Like I'm just gonna read for an inordinate amount of time, even beyond what is reasonable. Like I might have something to go and to do, and I'm going to forsake going and doing that thing because the story is so good. And I, quite frankly, I also have to admit that it's somewhat embarrassing how often I can do that with Netflix as well. I don't know if I'm the only person in the room who struggles with that, but it, I can totally push the important things in my life because I've been drawn into a story. And the real issue is that I get emotionally involved in fictitious people, right? And so I get to the end of a series or I get to the end of a book and I walk around like all sad and mopey for a couple of days because it's over, right? Like I'm thinking to myself like, man, there's there's no more cold openings from Dwight and Jim, Like, I guess I just have to start over, you know? Like, that's generally the solution. Or, like, still puzzling to this day, the ending of Lost. Like, did that ever make sense? Yeah, like, I I still don't know to this day. But these stories become something that I, I, like, want to be a part of. You get attached to characters, right? And I've gone through phases in my life where I've watched all of the, the sitcoms people will tell you are the greatest sitcoms, Right? Start with Cheers being the original, and then you watch Friends, and then you watch Seinfeld, How I Met Your Mother, and then you go to Parks and Rec, and The Office, and Community, and things of that nature, and you can take it to this nth degree because you're chasing a story that you're really invested in. Or I went through a period of time where I was trying to watch all of the movies that were nominated for Best Picture, right? Or I went through this hoity-toity phase where all I did was read classic lit, right? Like I was reading Tolstoy and I was reading Hemingway and all of these like Mark Twain and all of these sorts of things like thinking now I was better than everybody else, right? Because I, li- I read classic lit. And, but what you're doing is you're chasing a story that, that kind of catches you, a story that invites you in, a story that you don't want to put down. And quite frankly, know how, no matter how intricate the plot, know how no matter how good the characters, no matter how well-written something is, I haven't been able to find a story that is as good as the story that we're going to read today. And you might be sitting in your chair and you might be whispering to the person next to you that that seems like a very dramatic statement. 
Or you might say, be saying, sitting in your chair, wow, he's going to try to like manipulate my emotions. He wants an emotional reaction to the story that he's about to tell. And one, I promise I'm never going to try to manipulate your emotions. I'm not going to try to manipulate you into feeling something just for the sake of getting the reaction that I want. And the second part of this is that I have based my life and I am fully convinced that this is the best story ever written. With everything in my life, I've given my life to this story. And my hope is that when we get to the end of it today, that you might find the same sort of joy, that you might find the same sort of uh, beauty and wonder in this story is what I've come to know and experience in my life over the years. And I have to be perfectly transparent with y'all and admit that I have spent hours of my life. You can ask the Crosstalk team. I've asked each and every one of them what the perfect story, what the perfect metaphor, what the perfect illustration is to demonstrate the story and the kind of thing that we're going to read today. Something that makes it relevant and relatable in today's society. And I've struggled mightily to do so. And I think I believe that because every story I could think of or any illustration I could create or story that I could put in a modern context pales in comparison to the reality of Jesus hung on that cross so many years ago. And in my attempt to make it something modern, to make it something relatable, what I'm doing really is I'm translating something that is beautiful and unique and making it something that is boring and mundane. And it mitigates the wonder of this story when you try to create it into a narrative that is perfectly palatable. And so instead, what we're going to do today is we're going to place this story in the greater storyline of the Bible. For many people, including myself, for a very long time, considering the narrative storyline of the Bible was something that was very scary, that was something that was very overwhelming, that seemed like a very daunting thing. And you might be sitting in your chair and you might be asking, what narrative storyline? Which totally makes sense. When you look at the collection of the Bible, they don't put it in a perfect narrative format where you can read from cover to cover and you're like, I totally get exactly everything that happened, right? There are these weird breaks where you get to the Psalms and then you get to the Proverbs and then you have these like skips and jumps in time where you have to follow who is king and what's happening now. But in this greater storyline of the Bible, what you're seeing is something that is immensely beautiful. And really something that was super helpful for me when I, when I was trying to figure this out is when somebody suggested to me that you view the narrative storyline of the Bible like the acts of a play. And I have to admit, as much as I love TV, movies, books, I'm not a theater guy. This is not my forte. So if you guys need theater stuff, Jacob and Patrick are really your two guys. It's not me. That's the only thing that I'm going to, I'm going to make that disclaimer right now. But what we see when we view the Bible in this way is the possibility of seeing five acts in the biblical narrative. The first act is the act of creation. We see that God creates the heavens and the earth, that he creates night and day, and that he creates all of the plants and he creates the animals, and then he creates humankind. And he says that it's very good. And then he rests. And then the second act begins, and, and this is the fall of man. When Adam and Eve are in the garden, they eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and they disobey God for the first time. 
And as a result, sin enters this world and there is a separation now between humankind and God. And so as you keep thumbing through your Bible, you get to the third act. And the third act is the story of the nation of Israel. And in the nation of Israel, you begin with a covenant to Abraham that he's gonna make him a that he's gonna make him a father, that he's gonna have descendants that are as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then you fast forward and you get the Exodus story out of Egypt. And you get Moses receiving the 10 commandments and the law at Mount Sinai. And then you see the wandering of the people of Israel in the wilderness. And then you get to the promised land. And from the promised land, you have the judges. And then you have the kings like David and Solomon. And then as you continue to go, you see the nation of Israel break into two independent kingdoms. And as they do so, you see that eventually their ultimate demise is when they're taken over by various world powers. And their story, this scene is a story that's marked by God's miraculous provision for the nation of Israel that is contrasted with their own disobedience to God. And then you get to scene four. And scene four in this play is the climax of the entire narrative, and that is the story of Jesus, born of a virgin Mary. And then we watch him grow up throughout his life and go into his ministry. And that's what we've been doing for the last 10 or 11 weeks, is we've been looking at this story of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And the pinnacle of this scene is the crucifixion scene right? And then really act five is our resolution. The New Testament then forms the first part of this fifth act, which gives us as people a glimpse of what, of the hope of what this is supposed to look like. But inside of that, we as the church today now play a role in that fifth act. We now, it's our turn to be a part of God's work in this world all the way up until the end. And this storyline, it really is incredible when we look at it. It's truly the greatest story ever told. And because it is because we see the story of God who created everything, breaking into time and space to provide a way for his creation, which was broken and fallen and in need of a savior. And so what we're going to do today is we're going we're gonna to build off of what we've been doing for the last 11 weeks, and we're building up to the climactic moment at the end of scene four. Scene four here is the life of Jesus. And last week, we took a look at Jesus in, on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples throughout his life of the necessity of his suffering. And now it's, that suffering is imminent in his life. It's coming. And in the... In this story on the Mount of Olives, what we're seeing is really the question driving the plot of the narrative is, will Jesus continue to submit to the will of his Father? We saw in that story Jesus' prayer in his moment of agony saying, Father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And this is that seminal moment where we see Jesus' resolve to carry out the will of his Father. He's willing to be obedient to God's divine plan for the salvation of all of humankind. And since that time, Jesus is betrayed by Judas. 
and he's taken by the religious leaders and he's taken before the Sanhedrin and all of the Jewish authorities. And they put him on trial and they declare him guilty. And they declare him guilty. And there's something important for us to realize, and that is the Jewish leaders who are under the authority of the Romans, they don't have the ability to condemn anyone to death. And their solution then for the guilt of Jesus is that they take him to Pilate. And they take him before Pilate and they present these charges to Pilate. And Jesus goes and he goes and he speaks to Pilate. Pilate comes back out and he says that I, he sees nothing that this man has done that is deserving of death. And so Pilate passes him off to Herod. So Jesus goes before Herod and Herod mocks Jesus. But in the end, Herod sends him back to Pilate saying that he found nothing to convict Jesus for. And so Jesus stands before Pilate again and Pilate says to the people, says to the Jews that Jesus is innocent. He tries to punish Jesus and release him. And the crowd instead asks for Pilate to release Barabbas. And you see, Barabbas was someone who was basically raising rebellion against the Romans who had committed murder. And at this point, Pilate tries again to release Jesus, but the people continue to cry, crucify him, crucify him. And it's at this point in the story that basically Pilate turns, he caves, is the really simple part of this. And so he turns Jesus over and condemns him to death by crucifixion and releases for them Barabbas. And we pick up the story here in Luke chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 26. And it says, as the the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, and this place is called the skull because basically it has the geography of the skull. It's not a place full of skulls. It looks like a skull if you were to have an aerial view. And it says, so they they came to the place called the skull and they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And we see here that Jesus is crucified among criminals, that he's crucified among criminals. And though he himself is blameless, he shares the place of the unrighteous in this moment. And Jesus' prayer here as he hung on that cross alongside alongside these criminals is remarkable. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Who has ever been more wronged than Jesus in this moment? No one. No one has ever been declared more guilty and been 
more innocent. Yet Jesus in this moment chooses to forgive. He chooses to forgive those who have caused his pain and his suffering, those who are causing his death at this very moment. And Jesus chooses to forgive them. Jesus spoke a lot in his earthly ministry about the love of one's enemies, to which we as followers of Jesus are called. And this right here, our our own version of loving our enemies will pale in comparison to this. Jesus sets the example right here in this moment of what it means to love one's enemies. Verse 35 goes on and says, the people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. Verse 38, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Luke divides up those who are watching Jesus in this moment into three categories. The first category are the are just people who are watching, it says. So it's just people who are watching. And what they're doing is they're just checking out Jesus, right? They saw what was going on, and so they followed the crowd. And at this point, they're asking themselves several questions. They're saying, is he going to do anything to save himself? That being the most logical. If they're taunting him with this, is he going to do anything to save himself? Can he save himself? Is he really the king of the Jews? Is he a liar? Is he absolutely crazy? And then you see the second group of people mocking Jesus is, are these rulers and religious leaders? And they mock his ability to save others and his own apparent inability to save himself. And and their statement is dripping with sarcasm dripping with sarcasm. They're saying, if Jesus really is the Messiah, then he has to have the ability to save himself. And it's apparent that he doesn't. And then you go to the third group of people here, and that's the soldiers. And they also mock Jesus, basically daring him to prove his kingship. And they do this fully believing that Jesus cannot actually do it. And what we see here in this moment is that the point is that neither Jew nor Gentile, no one present for this moment understands what they're actually doing by nailing Jesus to the cross. And it goes on in verse 39 and it says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is kind of the example, if you guys ever grew up playing football, This is J-O-P. This is just jumping on the pile, right? This criminal here has seen everyone else mock and taunt Jesus, and so he just hops in on it, right? Even the criminal being crucified in front of him, with him, is getting in on the act of making fun of Jesus. This is basically like when you do something embarrassing in public with your friends, and your friends 
start to make fun of you. And then you realize that there's a person like across the way who saw what happened. And then they make fun of you too. I don't know if that's only me, but I've definitely had a random person who watched me do something embarrassing. And we like make eye contact and there's this knowing like, oh crap, you saw me do that. That's, that's what's happening here, right? He has no business being a part of this conversation, but he has inserted himself into this moment. And what's exceedingly interesting about this story is that the other criminal hanging with him is the one who rebukes him. The criminal offering the rebuke clearly sees this event, the two of them hanging on the cross, as a just punishment for what they have done. But he also sees the taunting of Jesus as this expression of hypocrisy, right? His remarks are really just a commentary on all of these groups of people who have taunted Jesus, but especially the one who is justly suffering for the crimes he committed. And the criminal confesses, we see here in his, in his rebuke, he confesses his own sin. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. And then he goes on here in the next statement, and he says something remarkable. He recognizes Jesus's innocence. He says, but this man has done nothing wrong. He recognizes Jesus's innocence, and then he also recognizes who Jesus is as evidenced by his next name. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And we see in this moment that Jesus can and does save. Despite the taunting, despite the mocking, what we see here is that in there is this remarkable sense of irony, right? Because what they're taunting him for, he's actually doing and they're not recognizing. That Jesus right here is offering salvation. And what comes as as an immediate result of the ask is Jesus's response. And he says here, basically, you, you want me to do this for you in the future. When I come into my kingdom, you're asking that you, that I remember you. And Jesus says, how about right now? Today, you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus's response here is mind-blowing because it's a manifestation of his mercy, his loving mercy to one of the dregs of humanity, right? Someone deserving of death on a cross. And it goes on in verse 44 and it says, and now it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And this is a remarkable scene in this moment. This is a remarkable scene because here we see creation's testimony to the death of Jesus. We see here the signs of darkness and the ripping of the temple veil testifying that significant events are being fulfilled in God's plan in this moment. This signifies God turning away from the temple as the place of worship, as the place of dwelling for the people of Israel. And as that curtain is torn, the separation between the people and God is now no longer. That by the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, that we now have direct access to the Father. Creation speaks for the creator 
on behalf of Jesus in this moment. And we as created human beings may have our own opinions about Jesus. But God here sends the real testimony about him. Verse 46 says that Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus here in this moment dies with a cry of faith. Jesus' prayer of trust is an expression of submission to God's will in this moment in which Jesus has faith that God will complete his plan. It says in verse 47, the centurion seeing what happened, praised God and said, surely this man was a righteous man. Upon observing what happened, the centurion utters the final words in this crucifixion narrative, which functions as a final judgment over the events. This is the high point of the whole narrative, builds to this one specific statement by the century. And the remark is significant because it doesn't come from a Jew, it comes from a Gentile, someone outside of the fold. And the verdict from the centurion affirms both Jesus's character and the injustice of what he just witnessed. The final note about Jesus's death is that he died innocently, that he suffered unjustly, If you were to read the other gospel accounts, the centurion affirms the identity of Jesus. He calls him the Messiah, the Son of God. And here, a Gentile, a Gentile is sensitive to what God is doing in this moment. And it goes on in verse 48 and says, when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. We see two groups of people here again. The first group is that same group who has just come up and they've walked up and they've just watched what's happened. And they mourn the death of a man and then they leave. They totally walk away. And then the second group of people here are those who understood Jesus, who understood his identity, who knew him, who are now dealing with the ramifications of his death. And the language here gives you this sense that really, that they lingered. They didn't turn around and walk away immediately, but they stood watching from a distance what happened. And I too want to linger on this. Because in this story, we see all throughout the narrative from the time Jesus is arrested to the moment of his death, we see his innocence. We see his innocence before Pilate. We see his innocence before Herod. And now we see his innocence here on the cross. And that's testified to by a criminal and by a Roman in this moment. And we come to see that Jesus dies as an innocent man, but he is still fully in control. And this is evidenced by his offering of eternal life to the man dying next to him on the cross. And so as clear for us as Jesus' innocence is, so too is the exemplary amount of trust that Jesus places in the Father, entrusting himself to God's care alone. He is 
fully submitted, even in the midst of his suffering, to carrying out the plan that God has for him. And in the midst of the crucifixion narrative, there are numerous taunts and numerous times that Jesus is mocked. People telling him to save himself if he is truly the son of God, to prove that he truly is the king of the Jews. And the reality of the matter is that Jesus died. There's no escaping that reality here. Jesus dies in this story. And what people assume, these, the people who have accused him of all of these things, they assume that they've won in this moment because they have proven that he truly was not the Messiah, that he was not who he said and he claimed to be. But the remarkable part about this is that if you flip over to Luke chapter 24 and what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, and here's a spoiler, is that the resurrection proves that indeed he was who he says he was. That he indeed was the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the whole world. And as we read the story of the crucifixion, we as the reader are left to contemplate Jesus' innocent sufferings. And in that contemplation, we have to do the hard work of placing ourselves into the story. And we have to ask ourselves simply, what is our view of Jesus? What is our view of Jesus? Are we like the religious leaders? Are we like the soldiers who mocked and taunted Jesus, doubting that he was who he said he was? Or are we like the centurion and the criminal who understood Jesus to be exactly the savior that they needed? To put it plainly, do we believe Jesus is who he said he is? Did he do what this book tells us that he did? And the hard reality we have to face is that we can't remain neutral like the crowd just looking on. We can't. It's one or the other. And we have to make a choice. If there's one thing that Luke is after in, its, in, in his gospel, it's helping us to understand our need our absolute abject need to totally embrace the blameless Jesus who died on the cross to make atonement for our sins. And the reality of the resurrection that we celebrate on Sunday makes a response necessary. It's inescapable for us. And I just want to take a second as we ponder that question to point out something that we've been talking about for about the last 11 weeks at this point. And that's that over the course of the book of Luke, Luke has wanted to show Jesus to precisely be the savior for the sick, the downtrodden, the broken, and the powerless. And here in this crucifixion account, what we see remarkably is that Jesus forgives a man condemned to die, justly condemned to die. The man himself on the cross says that I am deserving of the punishment that I am receiving. And that's remarkable because we see that God's love includes even this man, even this man who is deserving of death, who has done horrible things, who's the worst of the worst. And really what I want to say to you guys is that you don't have to have it all figured out to come to Jesus. 
You don't always have to do the right thing. You don't always have to say the right thing. That you don't have to come without doubts. That you don't have to be all put together. That you don't have to come without your own struggles. Because what we see in this moment is that God's love is big enough to include all of that stuff for us. Because Jesus meets us right where we are in meeting a man next to him on a cross. That is the significance of his crucifixion. That you aren't too sick, that you aren't too dirty, that you aren't too broken, that you aren't too powerless, that you aren't too much of an outsider to have a place with Jesus. That he loves you deeply, deep enough that he would suffer what no man deserves to suffer for us individually. And that his death on the cross was once for all time, for all sins, past, present, and future. And that there's nothing that we can do to separate ourselves from that. And that's great news, my friends. And it's primarily great news for myself. Because when I look at this story, I come to terms with the fact of my own brokenness, of my own sinfulness, that my own dirtiness, the things in my life that I continue to struggle with, no matter how hard I try, and I see that the width of God's love includes even me in those things. Because God is full of grace and he is full of mercy. And tomorrow is Good Friday. And tomorrow, Good Friday, is the day in which we celebrate this moment, the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's, it's kind of ironic that we would call it good. But it really is good, and it deserves to be celebrated because what we see in this story is that we know that the price has been paid for us, that our sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, that it is finished, that it is done, and that it is over. And that means that we are freely given the gift of new life. And so we can feel free to celebrate that it is a good Friday because we know the resurrection on Sunday is coming. And my encouragement for you tomorrow on Good Friday is to remember that, very simply to take some time apart from your busy day, whether you guys are going to be driving home to family tomorrow, whether you guys are, are going to be sitting around your dorm rooms, your houses, your apartments, maybe you're at work, and to just take a moment to reflect, to think about it. Because when I think about it and I reflect on it, it truly is the greatest story I've ever heard. And it's truly the greatest story I've ever heard because it includes even me. And now, as part of the fifth act, I have a part to play in this. That I get to walk in this newness of life that Jesus offers me, and I get to share that with a hurting and broken world around me. A world that is full of judgment, a world that is full of condemnation. And I get to walk into that world full of grace. Knowing that the gift that I have received in Jesus Christ is offered to all. Without a price, without being able to do enough to be enough or to bring enough to the table. And that is great news, my friends. And so I would encourage you to just reflect, 
to spend some time tomorrow thinking about just this story, to read it one more time, and to force yourself to come to terms with it. Because as we do that, we become more like Jesus, more and more every day. Thanks again for tuning in to the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Make sure you are following Crosstalk on social media at crosstalk underscore TXST. If you have any questions for the Crosstalk team, you can send us a message on those pages. We will see you here again next week.